Well, we can breathe from that. And now we switch gears a little bit and remember again that story of Pentecost that we celebrate today. So here, this New Testament lesson from the book of Acts, the second chapter. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each one of them. Now all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem at that time. And at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one of them uh, heard speaking in their native language. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each one of us, in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> Please pray with me. Holy Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be receptive to thee. O God, our strength and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. Okay, here is your brief lesson in intellectual history for this morning.
at least one take on it. One of the great gambits of modern thought in the Western world was a sophisticated attempt to explain religious faith away. Now, I'll add to that observation that the effort has been attempted not just by the cultural critics of Christianity, but by Christianity's proponents as well. Let me explain. From the opponents of the faith, we've heard and still hear today very complex and actually interesting attempts to explain faith away by suspecting that there is lurking underneath religion something that is different than the story that faith tells or the ideas that we ponder. These make a case that religion doesn't have its own integrity and should not be received on its own terms, but should be explained in terms of something else. Now these folks end up calling faith a kind of false consciousness, not aware of its own source. Of course, Sometimes people of faith make that effort a little easy by giving ample evidence for this suspicion. We hear that all of this is really about an elaborate attempt to come to terms with our own loneliness as human beings in the world, or to make sense of our suffering, or to control our emotions, or to meet our needs, or ease our fears, or preserve the dominance of one class over another, or the dominance of one gender or another, or one sexuality, or one culture. Religion is seen as really about ethics, or order, or compassion, or something else altogether. The sentences begin with something like, you know, religion is really about dot, dot, dot. The assumption beneath all of that is that if we can deal with any one of those things differently, whether through science or human will, we can diffuse religion's power and get past all of this. So we can become independent humans, able to live in an ambiguous and ambivalent world with strength and personal power. Okay, so much for the critics. But while people of faith have usually rejected those meaner attacks, we have still sometimes fallen prey to a similar impulse. Not so we can dismiss faith, but so we can define the place of faith in a world that is kind of losing any sense of a reality beyond what we can control. We have tried to explain religion on the basis of its usefulness. Faith makes you whole, we say, or happy, or productive, or at peace. The church provides care and community, or identity, or friendship, or comfort. Christians can join together to do good, 
to teach virtues to children, to serve the nation, to spend money well, or to work for the betterment of society. Faith makes life better, we say. So why not participate in it? More than once in my ministry, I've had young parents present themselves for membership in one of the congregations I've served after having read somewhere that children who grow up in the church tend to get better grades in school or use less drugs or have more friends. Or now and then I've seen older folks come back to church after many years away saying that they just want to be cared for or want friendship or like the music. Or folks over all the generational map who identify with some aspect of our social involvements or our community commitments. All of these are good reasons to come to church. Just wonder if they're enough. I ask that because it's Pentecost. And I just read a story about an outbreak back in the first century that can't be explained by anything I just listed. It's a story about a breaking through, about a wild God doing wild things. And it is a story that is right at the heart of our faith, right alongside the story of resurrection. And so I want to ask if that story of the wind and the fire and the power and the speaking in foreign languages and the words of Peter in defense of it all, if that opens up any holes in the gambit of modernity that I was just talking about for either the critics or the proponents of the faith. And you might think that I think it does. But before I get to that, I do want to be fair to what I want to poke holes in. Because while those two approaches of the culture despisers and the kinder defenders of the faith, those two approaches I just talked about are each incomplete, but they're not totally wrong. There are parts of all of this that have been shaped by human hands for purposes that are more human than divine as ways of tending to our passions or our anxieties or our fears or the other stuff I talked about. My children are very quick to remind me of all that. And there are ways that science and technology and politics and therapy and ethics and all such things have given us other tools for dealing with some of the things that religion used to deal with. And on the nicer side of all of that, there are aspects of religion that add value, that do good, that meet needs, that create community and very positive ways. Even if Pentecost never happened, or is left to that one moment of the first century, there is still some value in what we do here. 
I just want you to consider a possibility that the story of Pentecost helps me claim. <coughs> There's more. That's it. There's more. We don't need to explain belief away through suspicion or justify it by attaching it to some other thing that humans do. I'm inspired to say that by Peter. In verse 15 of what you heard read, as he blurted out one of what I think are the dearest and most delightful remarks in all of Scripture. Let me remind you, all that hoopla was going on with Folks hearing the Jesus followers speaking in languages that they had never spoken before, communicating with folks they had never been able to talk to before, speaking of remarkable events with confidence that they'd lacked just a few hours before. Some folks asked what it all means. I think they asked that sympathetically. But other folks responded derisively looking for another cause beneath it. They're all drunk. Now that's a much simpler critique than those complicated ones I talked about earlier. And the perfect response comes from Peter. In a way that we can let ring even through today. You see, Peter gathers his whole team around. He, he stands up on the public dais and begins as though ready to start a formal address to an audience. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. A fine Roman rhetorical start, I'd think. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. And then an odd funny, almost crude retort. Nope, we're not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning, for God's sake. I mean, really, it's that simple. We're not drunk. Kind of sums it all up for Peter. We're not taken over. We're not deceived. We're not pretending. We're not hiding something. We're not suffering false consciousness. We're not missing the point. We're not just being nice. Whenever someone starts either criticizing Christian faith or reducing it to something merely useful, I would suggest to you that you might use Peter's words. Nope, we're not drunk, as you might think. And then go on and say what Peter gets to. There is something in all of this religion business that is real. That is not reducible. That is not controllable. That is not predictable. That is accessible, powerful, and transformational. And despite all of our attempts to hide it or tame it, it won't go 
away. More than about personal realization, more than about mere satisfaction, more than mere empowerment, more than mere fulfillment of some vague promise of a Messiah, more than anything humanly imaginable, it's mysterious, not magical. It's experienced, not explained. It's more. It's excessive. It turns our faces toward others. The followers of Jesus who were touched by all of this that day were filled to overflowing. And the world that felt so overwhelming just a day before was given back to them in a new way as a space for them to live and move and have their being in Christ. They experienced something that felt sourced beyond human experience. I guess the best word to describe that is God. Look, dear friends, all the things that we say and all the things that we do and all of the rituals that make us a community can hide us from the reality of God, even as they can also help us do good things. But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit can transform them from things that are all too human to traces of God. And the same Holy Spirit can breathe new reality into them. She can set them on fire with a fire that does not destroy, but a fire that inspires. Like a wind, that reality blows through human assumptions and human dreams and human fears and human designs, turning our faces toward the wider world, empowering us for living on new grounds, with new languages, with a new desire to learn and speak with others. It fills the emptiness with a sense that there is more and that that more is shaped by love. Well beyond simply adding value to a life that draws its energy from elsewhere, when you feel this fire, you find bit by bit or all at once, that faith becomes the source of value. Well beyond being simply a comforting or pleasing set of traditions, when our liturgies and our rituals are opened up to the breeze of this fire, bit by bit or all at once, they become keepers of the flame that that wind ignites, as if the Spirit rewrites our prayers and our songs and our responses and our sacraments and our sermons and everything else that we do. And well beyond being an idea that needs to be justified or explained or made to fit modern life, when our minds are renewed by this Holy Spirit, bit by bit or all at once, the idea of God becomes the inspiration for all of our questions about life 
we become more interested, quicker to listen, and smarter. You see, alongside all it does to enhance other things that we care about, spirit-filled life has its own logic and its own integrity and its own power in every language, in every land, in every heart, sourced as much by God's spirit as our design. You can't define it away. You can't argue it down. You can't really explain it. Just receive it and go with the love and vision it gives. And the life of the spirit will go with us through all things. Now, this doesn't necessarily make life easy. Far from that, in fact. And in fact, it will give you exciting and sometimes daunting things to do. And this doesn't mean that there's nothing to learn. Far from that, too. It, it'll actually make you voraciously wanting to know more. And this doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be stumbles along the way. There will, this side of paradise, though the path still remains clear and open. The spirit still happens, however it will. It happens in you. It happens in the church. It happens out and about in the world in ways that we can't predict. And no, 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 we're not drunk. <laughs>